Hey guys, welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality. I'm Sydney DeLorean, and I'm here with Rob Love. What's up, Rob? Hey, Sydney. Hey, listeners. How's it going? Glad to be back here. Hashtag fan favorite, sex, drugs, and spirituality. Here we are. We're going to do a thing. We're doing a podcast. We are, and um, we what are we're talking about the Maury Hill incident, which is something that you uh, have done a lot of research on. I have done a lot of. First of all, it's the Maury Island incident, um, and I have done a lot of research on it, um, starting back in 2014. I did some sleuthing by bicycle where I documented a trip out to Moria Island where I went and searched for remnants of the, uh, the sighting, uh, which apparently left some material on the beach. So I went and hunted for some of those uh, fragments, came up with something, not sure if it was uh, UFO related, but, um, but it was a fun day. Nice day for a ride. I, I documented it on my Twitter page back in 2014. Maybe you can post a link or something. I, I did tweet you one of the tweets from that day. Yeah, um, I'll, but, I will retweet it so people can find um, that thread on your Twitter. Um, yeah, perfect. Okay, so how did you hear about, before you biked out there, how did you hear about the Maury, Maury Island incident, which is different than the Maury Povich incident? It is different than the Maury Povich incident. Uh, I was I was at work. I was in the executive uh, offices one Ooh. day, uh, tending, tending to the interior plants, and in a, a little seating waiting area, they had some magazines on um, one of the end tables, and uh, it was about local stuff, and it had um, some sort of, I don't know, mysteries, local mysteries or whatever, and one of them was the Maury Island incident. I was like, Maury Island incident? What the heck is that? So I went home, and I looked it up, and I was pretty intrigued about it. Um, it is unique in that it um, it predates Roswell by a month. Ooh. So this is this is sort of the this is the first um, UFO sighting of the the post World War II era, which is like that's when like all the the intensity of of sightings um, increased, the frequency increased, and all that. So this one sort of started it all off. Um, I think it would be helpful to give a brief roadmap of of the sort of the chain of events, and then we can get into more detail on on you know. Uh, each of the phases of the story or whatever. So it started, it's June 21st, 1947. Okay, here I'm... <laughs> okay, sorry, no, you just go ahead. I'm no, starting, I I was being distracted because I was thinking about if when you make love to a woman, you also call that tending to the interior plants. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, I digress and we can get back on topic. There's lots of bush um, puns that could be made, bushes, shrubs. Yeah. Um, I've, I've made quite a few of them as a groundskeeper, I have. Oh, I'll I'm admit. sure. So it basically, the story goes, it's 1947. Um, a guy's out on a boat in Puget Sound, sees some UFOs, uh, tells his par- business partner about it. Um, they it, it gets investigated. A lot of people think it's a hoax. 
the Air Force gets involved, they invest, they send people to investigate it um, as their plane is leaving um, with some of the evidence of the sighting, it crashes about uh, 100 miles away from Tacoma. It's on its way to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to have the material analyzed, but uh, the plane goes down and uh, the material was never found. What? That is the short piece of the beginning half of it. Um, I thought it was gonna, this was going to be a fun little story, like a little lark about a, a UFO sighting on a nice day back in 1947. And the more I started um, looking into it, it just got deeper and deeper with a lot of crazy overlaps with the JFK assassination, if you what? can believe it. This story goes so deep. I'm, I can't wait to um, get this podcast finished so I can get it out of my head because I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted. This is, <laughs> I will just like, say, as someone who loves conspiracy theories, I don't, I, I will preface this by saying that I don't believe in them, but I love them. And there is nothing better than when you're researching something and then there's a thread that leads to something else. And next thing you know, it's just been five hours of you watching shitty like YouTube videos that people made um, trying to because you're going to be the one who's going to solve it. You're going to put all the pieces together. Um, I fucking love it. So it's 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 exhausting. And also, besides that, um, I have a bit of a head cold that like turned into a chest cold yesterday. So I'm not feeling my greatest, but at least I don't have a cyst baby. Um, how's your cyst baby doing? Uh, I still have a cyst baby. And let me just preface. First of all, this is why you are hashtag fan favorite, because you were not afraid to record while sick. You you didn't bail out, even though I told you you could have. Um <laughs> And then for the listeners who don't listen to my other podcast, uh, Decency with DeLorean, I have an ovarian cyst and it feels like I'm pregnant right now. Um, and I anxiously am awaiting it popping. I also have a uh, ganglion cyst on my wrist. And if you're not familiar with ganglion cysts, they used to call them Bible bumps because they're cysts that grow on the tendons in your joints. And um, what they would do back in the day is uh, someone would just hit you on the wrist with a Bible to pop the cyst. Um, it just Ugh. it doesn't burst through the skin. It just explodes internally and you reabsorb those fluids. Uh, it's not uh -uh. a great treatment because the cyst just comes back because the sac is still there. Um, so, yeah, I'm a fucking mess. Like I have a cyst oh. on my wrist. I have a cyst on my ovary. I'm just I'm harboring all of these bubbles in my body. And if anyone would like to come, uh, I, I thought about putting an ad on Craigslist and just like first person to give me 200 bucks, I'll let you hit me on the wrist with a Bible. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything that can be done about the ovarian cyst. Uh, you just have to wait for them to rupture. And uh, until then, I'm wearing a lot of flowy dresses, you know, just really letting, letting the body breathe because it's very uncomfortable to wear pants. I have um, I have a pup date. <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking about your cyst just now, um, I remembered I I, um, I asked a guy in the trash room about what happens to the body parts. Oh yes, I meant uh, to ask like you about that. Surgery. 
Yes, what yeah, happens? Yeah, I meant to. Well, it turns out that they do not, body parts are kept separate from like the bloody rags and things like that. All those bloody rags and stuff, they go through the autoclave, that big sort of like steam cleaner thing or whatever, like a hot steamer, uh-huh. before they get thrown in the trash. But the actual body parts are kept in a freezer. So like placentas, feet, um, tonsils, I would assume. Stop they it. Are picked, and they are picked up by an outside company, a different company than the one that does like the sharps and the biohazards and the, that kind of stuff. So it's another company from Seattle called Waste Management that comes down and picks up the frozen body parts. And that's where my research fizzled out because I didn't actually call waste management to ask them what they do once they get a hold of them. But it's very likely possible that they do get incinerated. I would assume, yeah, that they're probably going to like a crematorium. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Huh. Yeah, because I don't, there's a thing called um, liquid cremation that is apparently better for the environment and basically um, the body parts are dissolved in lye. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's grown in popularity as much as it was predicted. I read the Mary Roach's book, Stiff. I read like 14 years ago and that's where I learned about it. And she said, you know, this could be potentially a big thing in the future because, uh, cremation is not environmentally great. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know if the body parts, it'd be cool if they liquid cremated them, but I bet they still go to a classic crematorium, but we'll, we'll continue researching this. Yeah. I'm going to leave it up to you. I think I'm, I'm done researching the body parts, but the company is called waste management out of Seattle. They, they do all the, like the curbside trash pickup around Seattle, but apparently they have a body parts division that is willing to drive down to Tacoma to, to collect our, uh, no longer needed organs and things like that um well i tell you what i'm seeing my mother uh in two weeks and i will ask her about it because we're getting together to go see uh dumbo in the theater and she's going to meet my boyfriend for the first time and so i think just part of casual conversation of like mom this is zach zach this is mom hey mom when you worked at hospitals what did they do with the body parts um well that's uh, that sounds like an up uh, an upcoming pup date. That will be me. on a future pup date. So yeah, nice, that'll hold nice. me to it. That I will I will talk to my mother and I will ask her questions. Okay, okay. So where do we want to get started? I guess I can just um, actually. I have a good. I got. I actually went to the library, and I checked out an actual book, um, paper and ink and everything. Whoa. That's, well, first. First of all, I went to the library's sort of like catalog online uh-huh. and I searched for Maury Island and whatnot. There were two books that looked good um, at the main branch, which I live nearby. One of them was in the like the special collections room that you can't, the, the books in there aren't available for checkout. And, uh, and then one was on the regular shelves available for checkout. So um, I managed to get an hour. It was really difficult to get to the library. Based on my daily schedule and all that, it's really hard to get to the library before they close. But I managed to carve out an hour 
I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the special collections room. I'm going to find that book. I'm going to read as much as I can, maybe take a few pictures of, of pages that seem interesting. And then um, before the hour's up, I'm going to go find the other book, check it out, and go. Wow, so you are the did, research champ. Well, I tried. I tried. So I did that. I went, found the book and the special collections thing. I read, like, the introduction and the first couple chapters, took a few photos, and then, like, handed it off and went and found the other book, checked it out, got it home, opened it up, and realized it, it's the same book. Stop the it. One that I checked that, the one that I checked out was just an updated version of the one that's in the special collections room. So I was, like, frantically reading for like half an hour when I could have just taken my time and, and chilled out. But it did, it did force me to do some reading. So yeah. anyway, so I got this book. Um, it's called JFK and UFO by a man named Ken with two N's, Thomas. And uh, let's see, when was it written? I uh, love that it's Ken with two N's. He's Ken. Yeah. Guess it was written. I don't know. It says 2011. That could be true. I'm not sure if that's just this, you know, printing or whatever, but <clears throat> but that sounds about right. So let me get to the, okay, here we go. Chapter one, what happened at Maury Island? And I will scan and maybe read some stuff. Basically what happens is this guy named Harold Dahl, a Tacoma resident, was out on his boat in the waters um, off of Tacoma in um, uh, Puget Sound. And uh, apparently his job was kind of to take this old boat. It's not an old boat at the time. It was, it was built in 1942, the boat was. Um, it was a fishing boat that was requisitioned by the Navy for World War II, and it was used as a minesweeper. Um, and then after the war, it was decommissioned, kind of turned back into a fishing boat, and this guy, Harold Dahl, bought it. And he used it to kind of um, cut around the shores of Puget Sound looking for logs that had, like, stray logs that had gotten loose from, uh, like, log booms or whatever. And he would he would tow those logs. Apparently, those logs were branded with, like, um, you know, whoever, whatever the company that owned it uh-huh. would brand their logs. So he would check the brand. He would return the logs to the company that owned them uh, in exchange for, like, a reward. Oh. So that was, yeah, kind of a really, I kind of want that job. Yeah. It's like a, like a, a bigger, higher end version of like a, being like a metal detector person. You know, you're just kind of wandering around looking for things. Yeah. But it's not as tedious and you're just floating out in the water and it sounds great. Yeah. I think I would, I would enjoy it. So he's out doing that. Um, Oh, let's see, the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he's out doing that uh, June 21st, 1947, and uh, he's out searching for logs, and he's on. other people are on the boat with him. He's got his 15-year-old son and their family dog, and then two other workers that presumably were there to help kind of wrangle the, the logs and stuff and, and tow them back. So they're out there. Um, off the, the shore of Maury Island, which is 
just a quick boat ride across um, Puget Sound from Tacoma. So he looks up in the sky and sees six. Um, you, he he described them as donut shaped um, UFOs. Of course, I don't think the word UFO had been coined yet, but um, they were six uh, saucer type things. One but, of them was in the middle, and there were five others circling around it. And they were um, hollow in the middle, I guess, because they're donut shaped. Yeah, yeah. There was like um, he he estimated that the the open the hole in the middle was like twenty feet across. Okay. So, to give you an idea of just the size of them or whatever. And uh, so they, they were up high, like he said, like 2,000 feet, but then they came lower, and the one in the middle seemed to be having, like, some malfunction, some mechanical problems or whatever. It was um, spinning irregularly, kind of, like, wobbling. Oh, it's like when you uh, put a shoe in the dryer, and then all of a sudden the yeah, tumbles fucked. Yeah, that was a shoe in the – yeah. So it, it came down closer to the water, and it um, started making all this noise, and all this stuff started coming out of it. At first, it was this um, white material that kind of looked like newspaper or like ashes or something like that, and then it was followed by this black material that um, uh, was super hot. When it hit the water, it would like sizzle really loud or whatever, and a bunch of that stuff would hit the boat. Right. Oh. So it kind of like caused all this damage to their boat. So meanwhile, this all took like minutes to take place. So they actually had time to. Oh, after they got hit by the material, they had time to like go um, to the shore. They kind of beached the boat or whatever. And he got out of his camera and took a few pictures of these um, UFOs. Right. But while the while they were out on the water, still the material coming down not only damaged the boat, it killed their dog. And a big chunk of it apparently hit um, Harold Dahl's son's arm, and it burned his arm. He later had to go to a Tacoma hospital um, to be seen for it. And if I'm, if my guess is correct, it's the one I work at. Whoa! Yeah. You live in a cool, vortex huh? of weird. Um, <laughs> but these are some tangible things for like something happened, right? The boat was burned. The dog was killed. The the kid was fucked up. Like, so we have tangible evidence that something happened. And this is how yeah. the intergalactic war starts because for some reason, I'm very upset that the dog got killed. Um, that is the most that is the most disturbing part of this whole story. I do have to say later on, there's people that get killed, but that's, that's the dog is still a little more sad. <laughs> yeah. I'm very, I'm very sad about this. The dog's just having a great day. It's out with its owners. They're working. And then all of a sudden it gets burnt up by some bullshit. That's not a great day for the dog. Yeah. And then they just, they gave him a burial at sea. They were Aww. just like, yeah, this dog's dead. So they threw him overboard. <laughs> Yeah. But whatever. It happens. I guess whatever. It happens. I had friends whose dog died like out in the woods and they were miles from their car even and there's no phone service and their dog was like a big heavy dog. And so they had to leave it there because they're just like we tried to like make a thing to carry him to like get him out of the woods and we just couldn't and so they just had to tell the park ranger hey our dog is there and um we don't know what to do and the park ranger was like i don't go back and look for it because he's gonna be all eaten up you just <laughs> you just let him become part of nature now 
Yeah, I think a bear would claim it or something like that, right? Yeah, so they, I would, yeah. I would not I wouldn't go back to it. That doesn't sound safe. No, they just like wanted to like, I don't know, let the park ranger know that's out there. Um, but yeah, so you can't always take your dog home to bury it. Sometimes you have to bury it at sea. That's a terrible story. Thanks for that downer. Dude, uh, it was like was... a, that was not even all the details of it, but it was a bummer story. Um <sighs> So, like you said, there's tangible evidence of this sighting, right? Not only all that stuff that we mentioned, but well, the, the guy estimated that about 20, 20 tons of this material was dropped by this um, by that center UFO. So, what happened is uh, twenty the, tons. You know, the, the thing, twenty tons. Yeah. So he's he's wobbling. The UFO's wobbling. Uh, he gets down close to the water. He dumps his load. Apparently, another one of the five UFOs comes down, um, like taps the malfunctioning UFO, and then all of a sudden, the malfunctioning UFO is working properly again and uh, joins the, the other five, and then they kind of take off. Wait, there. I'm sorry. All it needed to do to be fixed was get tapped? Like Well, fist bump, baby. Yeah, couldn't they have done that before it killed the dog? I'm just saying. I don't know. Maybe. Well, okay. Do you want to get, should we stop and, and examine some of the, the other sort of like conspiracies that uh, surround this event? Because there's one of them that suggests that, that the UFOs were part of um, you know, a nearby nuclear plant. Um, from Hanford, that's where like one of the nuclear bombs for World War II was um, developed, or I guess at least some of the uranium or plutonium or whatever was like um, created there. So they had all this like nuclear waste, and one of the conspiracies is that those UFOs were just dumping nuclear waste into the water. Oh. Which I it freaked me out at first because I was like, dude, I brought a bunch of that stuff home in my bike bags like five years ago. What's <laughs> that going to do to me, right? Uh-huh. But after after thinking about it, like n- neither um, none of the characters involved in the story ever suffered any kind of radiation poisoning, even though they were exposed to the material, and that just seems like a long, needlessly complicated wet method of. Um, getting rid of nuclear waste I yeah don't, i just don't buy it yeah if they had a front that. row seat to it and they didn't have any issues then you're probably fine yeah so um <clears throat> let's see so the guy harold Dahl, he they they pack up they're like okay well that that was pretty fucked up so they go home he takes his kid to the hospital um he tells he calls his business partner this guy named fred Crisman. Um, who is going to kind of carry the torch of this story on to JFK. Um, <clears throat> he calls his friend Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff Christman, who's sort of his business partner or whatever. He feels the need to tell him about the damage to the boat. And so he explains what happened. Fred Christman is, uh, he doesn't believe him. Um, he's, he accused him of being drunk. Because this is 1947. This is when if anything, anytime anything crazy happened, you just accuse the person of being drunk. And if like a lady was hysterical, you'd slap her. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, in 1947, if you're going to spend time with your kid and you're going to be doing manual labor, you know you're drinking. That's just what you do. Pretty much. Yeah. And there's lots of breweries around Seattle at that time. So he was probably drinking some 
Olympia, maybe some Rainier. It's hard to say. Heidelberg was the Tacoma one. So they probably had a they probably had a half rack of Heidelberg out on that boat. I'm guessing. But so uh, Jeff Christman uh, goes back the next day to investigate. He goes to the spot where Harold Dahl um, told him all this stuff got dumped out of the UFO. He sees the pile of stuff. He he takes some of it. He puts it into uh, like a Kellogg's cornflakes box. Um, <laughs> and then. I don't I know, know why I love that weird... so much. Yeah. I know. I don't know why. But Is yeah, it so it's not detail. an ooze? It's solid material? Yeah, it was like chunks. Okay. Um it may it may have been um liquid as it exited the UFO, but after it came in contact with the water, apparently it hardened. Okay, so like so, lava. Yeah, maybe lava. It's hard to say. But he did collect some of the white stuff, some of the black stuff, and he put it. The box was not like a cardboard, like cereal box, like you would see on the shelf today. It was more of a um, like a crate, apparently, um, that may have held boxes of the cereal. So it wasn't just a cardboard box. Okay. But, uh, yeah, for what it's worth. So he collects some of the stuff, and then while he's there um, at the site, uh, uh, he sees a UFO, just a single one, all by itself. Stop it. Just, like, hanging out to be like, is that shit I dumped still there? Apparently. Apparently. But, um, just spoiler, you're gonna learn to distrust everything this jackass Fred Crisman says. Oh, um, no. So, it could very well be bullshit that he was just like, oh, yeah, I saw one, too. Now I'm in the club. You know what I mean? Because he wants those cool guy points. He wants to be part of the cool guy club with his buddy, Harold. We all want to be part of the cool guy club. Well, some of us already are, but um, we are accepting applications. So So, um, so he collects this material. He uh, contacts this. um, There was a magazine, like a sci-fi magazine called Amazing Stories. At the time, he contacts the publisher. Um, I don't have the guy's name, um, but he contacts the publisher of Amazing Stories, tell him about what happened. And it was um, Art Bell. It was not Art Bell. It's this guy. Uh, I I don't want to flip through the book while I'm talking because it gets a little slow. But it, it, the picture, I can't remember his name, but I did see a photo of this um, magazine publisher, and he looks like the most impish little sprite of a man I've ever seen. He looks like he'd be fun to hang out with. Because he's so <laughs> tiny? He's just, he looks like a little elf. Oh, I would he probably love him. Like, yeah, he looks like he's got a, like a, um, a streak, a streak about like a hijinks. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, like yeah. Just a, he's a little, ra- he looks like a little rascal. I mean, as someone who but, loves chihuahuas, I probably would really like this guy. <laughs> so okay um at three days after i'm gonna get back to the publisher of the magazine in a second three days after um the maury island incident so june 24th 1947 this um this pilot he was a former air force pilot or army air force as it was called then um he was searching for the wreckage of a uh, Marines transport plane that had gone down over the winter on Mount Rainier, um, carrying 32 Marines, and all of them were presumably killed. Um, but the 
you know, the military wanted to find the wreckage so that they could recover the bodies and whatnot. So they offered a $5,000 reward for anyone who could locate the wreckage. So this guy was out in his kind of like a light plane, you know, just a private aircraft. And he was flying around Mount Rainier looking for this wreckage when he sees um, nine UFOs. He described them as crescent-shaped, um, but they, you know, he he sees them, they, you know, fly off, they kind of do a little formation and they take off at, you know, he estimates at about like 2000 miles an hour or something. That's um, pretty fast. It's pretty fast. It's faster than a Tesla. So, faster than a Tesla, <laughs> faster than anything, faster than anything in 1947, right? Yeah. So, so he was already kind of, he was sort of in the media for that. Um, and this, uh, so then this publisher, this magazine publisher guy, um, hires him as well as another pilot who had recently spotted a UFO named Amel Smith. Um, he hires these two pilots with each of which has their own UFO sighting to go interview Harold Dahl and Fred Crisman, um, at like the Waldorf hotel in downtown Tacoma. So these two aviators come to interview them, uh, when, when, um, shoot Harrison, no. Darn it. I forget the uh the main investigator guy. The first the guy that, that spot, spotted the nine UFOs. Um Clint he, Howard. What's that? Clint Howard. Wait, what? I don't know. I just figured I was picturing like a I was picturing Clint Howard, the actor. Oh Clint Clint Howard. <laughs> and then I was like, we'll call him Clint Howard. Are you talking about the magazine publisher? No, the uh, first pilot. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, he, I can't find his name, but he shows up at the hotel and discovers that um, there's already been a room um, reserved under his name. So he thinks that's pretty weird. Um, but he and this other pilot, inter- the, the interview takes place. Harold, Harold Ball and Fred Crisman are interviewed by these two pilots. Um, later, they believe that the room had been bugged for some reason. Um, I'm not sure who did the bugging or who would have benefited from doing the bugging at that point. But, but didn't just um, like the magazine publisher who sent them there reserve the room for them? Because that seems pretty standard. It could be. But I think the theory is that Fred Crisman um, <clears throat> got the room ahead of time, went in and planted a bunch of bugging devices or something. Um, and then, you know just so he could, I don't know why, so he could have that information for later or whatever. But, but did they um, do the interview in the room or it's just where the yeah, guy, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why they would feel the need to bug the room, but whatever. That's, that's what somebody said. Um, the aviators doing the investigation kind of feel like it's a hoax. Um, but they, they call in the, what was then called the army air force, um, and sort of tell them what's going on. The Army Air Force uh, comes and uh, sends their own investigator, um, who they meet with, Harold Dahl and Fred Grisman meet with this guy. They hand him the box of stuff. Um, and then he, ta- he that's when he um, is going to take it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, and crashes along with another pilot. Um, and both of these pilots were sort of like intelligence. They weren't just like 
regular pilots. They were intelligence. And Fred Crisman is um, rep- reputed to have been like a CIA agent or CIA adjacent. Some people just think he kind of like put that out there on his own to ingratiate himself to people. He kind of like liked pumping himself up and making himself seem like a big deal, as you'll see. But um, they, so some people suspect that Fred Crisman actually sabotaged the, the plane um, that exploded. Oh. So, yeah. The, the, oh, and here's an interesting tidbit. The day that that plane took off and crashed mm-hmm. was the first day that the Air Force, Pardon me, the Air Force became a thing. Before that, it was the Army Air Force. And then that, that day, it became the Air Force. And that was their first, um, like, mishap or whatever of the modern-day Air Force. Just day one? Crashing. Day one. And so the Air Force sends an investigation team or whatever. Um, they don't really do much they don't find the the material that was on the plane like they go they, to the they go to the site where they go to the site of the crash yeah and they didn't find they, any of the material that had been collected in the <laughs> like because theoretically there's more right he put some shit in a box here's the shit and then they go back to so the were, site and there's nothing else oh they don't go back to the they don't go back to maury island oh. um the these Air Force investigators just go to the site of the Air Force plane crash. They okay. recover the bodies of the two pilots. They look for the box of stuff, but they don't see it. And they pretty much say, yeah, it was just an accident. But some people think that um, Fred Crisman might have sabotaged the plane somehow, or maybe had even, um, instead of giving them that weird material, had maybe even like given them a bomb to take on the plane. Oh. So, yeah. So uh, there's twists and turns. Yeah, but they never found the plane. They found the plane. Okay, they they found found the plane, plane, but they they didn't find the guys. They found the two pilots that were on board, and they recovered their bodies. They did not find the Kellogg's cornflakes box full of um, UFO UFO slag or whatever. Okay. So they they just closed the investigation. They say "Eh, it was an accident. What? Um, And they don't think. Yeah. And they don't think any anything else of it. So, um, <clears throat> meanwhile, meanwhile, here's this is this is sort of the like the best part of the whole story. Harold Dahl, the the principal witness of this UFO sighting, is visited one morning by a man in black driving a 1947 Buick, also black. And he's described as your typical man in black. This is the first description of a man in black. This is the first time we ever have people going, (laughs) there's these people, the men in black. This is the first appearance of a man in black. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's just another interesting uh, twist. It's like, where doesn't this story go? So he's, um, this guy knocks on his door, um, says, hey, I want to... Let's go out. Let's go out for breakfast. I want to talk to you about what happened. So they go to a, a restaurant in Tacoma. While they're eating, uh, the the man in black basically describes to Harold Dahl what had happened. And Harold Dahl's like, "Wait, how does this guy know what had happened? Um, he wasn't there, and I'm pretty sure he hasn't talked to any of the other people that was that were there. So how does he know all these details, right?" And a man in black basically issues some <clears throat> not so veiled threats, 
saying that if Harold Dahl continues to talk about what had happened or if he discusses it, um, that uh, bad things are going to happen to him and his family and his his business and all that kind of stuff. He basically just says your life's going to fall fall apart if you if you talk about this. Because Harold Dahl the next day had gone to gone back to work and was just discussing it with all those coworkers, as I'm sure any of us would do, right? Yeah. Like, this is fucking weird. This weird thing happened over the weekend. Isn't this crazy? So um, at first, Harold the, the the man in black leaves the restaurant. Harold Dahl at first is kind of dismissive of it, but he does think it's pretty weird that he knew so much. Um, he continues to kind of like talk about it um, with with people. Um, but soon after, his 15 year old son, the guy who got the arm burn on the boat, yeah. disappears. What? He disappears. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he, the uh, Harold Dahl notifies like the sheriff or whatever, puts out a missing person report, all that kind of stuff. He later is found, weeks later, apparently, he's found in Wyoming bussing tables at a diner and he has no idea how he got there. Stop it. I'm serious. Because I was ready to go. Maybe uh, he just ran away because his dad was being crazy. And this is back when kids could run away and be fine. Um, one of my grandpas had a classmate run away in 1929 and he, uh, hopped on a train and said he was going to go, uh, be a hobo and he didn't come back till two weeks later. Um, and that's just oh, what wow. happened in 1929. And I, uh, I have it all documented, like my grandpa had broken his leg, and so the other little kids in his second grade class were writing him letters while he was home with a broken leg about all the, you know, the happenings, all the school kid happenings, and it was like, oh, well, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy said he was gonna go ride the rails, and now he's gone, and then like, you go through the letters, and a couple weeks later, it's like, Jimmy came back, he said he didn't want to be a hobo anymore, um, but they probably ran into Charles. They probably ran into Charles Manson and got like raped in a in a train car or something and came back because that's that's what Charles Manson was doing for a while there. What? Yeah, as a teenager, last podcast did a did a, a series on Charles Manson, and uh, they described his early years um, riding the rails and getting anally raped by hobos. Oh, I don't know why I I have like. I've listened to that. I must have blocked that out. Um, yeah, so it's a, good, it's a good thing to block out. So okay. We'll so yeah, I was willing the, to say this kid just like ran away. Was like my dad is out of his mind. But no, they find yeah. him and he doesn't know how he got there. And you, if you go to Wyoming, you know exactly how you fucking ended up in Wyoming. Yeah, you would hope so. Apparently, he just went into like a fugue state or whatever. Like he never recovered any memory of of what went on that at that time but so um back to see that's weeks later that where the kid gets found but back closer to the the time of the sighting um let's see other bad things start to happen uh his his wife uh gets suddenly ill uh, which is made worse by the disappearance of their son so her health takes a nosedive um, I guess his boss like turns down some business proposal that Harold had made. Um, and, uh, oh, his boat started um, having all these, like it started breaking down. This is all over like a week's time or so. So about a week after the sighting, he decides to clam up about the whole thing and take the man in black's advice and not discuss it anymore. He comes out, um, publicly saying it was all a hoax 
and he never talks about it again. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Fred Frisman, on the other hand, rides this thing as far as it will take him. Oh, this guy, I freaking hate this guy. But um, he does not shut up about it. He continues to, um, let's see. Yeah, actually, there's kind of a quiet period. He's He's kind of, okay, here's where it gets a little dicey. But he's, apparently, he was an ex-Air Force pilot, this Fred Frisman guy. And after he comes out with this story about the UFOs, he's recalled to Air Force service in like 1949 or something like, and it's suspected that the government wanted to shut him up basically. So they, they enlist, re-enlist him, even though he's retired, which is sort of unheard of at the time. Um, and they force him to, they force him, they make him fly planes. Um, they base him in like all these far off places. Um, he ends up in Greenland. You know, like, which is sort of like that stereotypical thing of if you, if you screw up, they send, they ship you off to basically our Siberia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I wish I had a so, job that could ship me off somewhere that's sparsely populated. They're like, oh no, uh, we'll keep paying you and we will pay to relocate you to someplace where there's less people. Like, I feel to I would see, do that. Yeah. I feel to see the downside in this, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so apparently that happens. There's uh, a things are pretty quiet for a while, but um, around 1968, he's he's I forget he he gets Frank, Fred Krisman, um likes to write letters um, posing as other people. <laughs> so um, he a, a letter was received by this is where I'm getting a little dicey. So correct. Don't don't quote me. <laughs> this is a little sketchy, but um, he writes a letter to someone who's in the media, basically like the the television industry, okay. like a science fiction science fiction writer, and describes the events that um, happened and his whole like CIA um, backstory and all this stuff. Um, apparently that's, that was what formed the basis of the 1968 television show called the invaders. Um, and Fred Crisman thought that the main character was basically, you know, him sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah. So So, 20 years um, later, it's still in the ether. This incident. It's still in the ether. Um, he apparently is working for Boeing, at the time. Um, and this is where his connection to the JFK assassination comes from. Uh, he was working for Boeing and one of, or I guess it was, um, JFK's final speech. And I had something to do with, um, this new, um, fighter plane that was being developed. And JFK decided to give the contract for that plane to, um, What's the name of the company? General General Dynamics. Okay. Instead of instead of Boeing, so he gives the contract for this new fighter plane to Boeing's competitor, and that's where Fred Crisman comes in as one of the suspects in JFK's assassination. Because um, apparently, um, and this is like Oliver Stone's movie, which I've never seen, the JFK movie. Mm-hmm. apparently has 
he ties in um, the CIA, the mafia, some UFO people, and military and industrial complex people. These are the four sort of groups that are kind of surrounding the assassination, um, at least in the story he told in that movie. And so Fred Crisman is um, allied with the military industrial complex complex arm of the conspiracy. Um, he has contacts with this guy named Clay Shaw, who is the, the grassy knoll shooter. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So, um, Fred Crisman was subpoenaed in the investigation into the JFK assassination by this guy, Jim Garrison, who was behind the investigation. Um, uh, Garrison wanted to talk to Crisman due to his association with this Clay Shaw fellow, um, but he was never actually like brought to tr- brought in. For, he was questioned, but mm-hmm. he was never like an official suspect. He was just sort of a person of, of interest, whereas Clay Shaw actually was a suspect. Like, um, okay, so Clay Shaw was a suspect because he was the grassy knoll guy. Is that they thought? Like, yeah. Right, right, yeah. He was identified as one of the people on the grassy knoll. I believe the term was the like, the um, like the tramp. He was kind of looked like he was he he was dressed shabbily. They called him like the the disheveled tramp or something like oh. that. And that was what that one of the characters in this whole in the JFK thing, right? Yeah. And so that's that's Clay Shaw, um, who oddly enough was part of Operation Paperclip, and was. Uh, instrumental in getting um, what's the guy? The guy who helped with our missiles and stuff. Oh, um, the German, the, the Nazi guy who was brought over. Uh, uh, oh <laughs> yeah, um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I right? do know who you're talking about. I just don't know his name. A, yeah, pop date. Yeah. Um, so he was instrumental in bringing all these like former Nazis, like scientists or whatever. Um, over to the U.S. to help with our war effort and our space effort and whatnot. Which, like, um, what so- a what a fucking piece of shit. Like, he may not have shot the president, but he's bringing war criminals over because he thinks that we can benefit from their scientific knowledge, which <clears throat> I think we can say that uh, in hindsight, we realized that these Nazi scientists were not good scientists. Like, they not only were they bad people, but they were bad at science. Um, so, you know, I just, uh, there, there was no purpose. There was nothing to be learned, uh, from them. But anyways, so this guy was an official suspect. Yeah. And then another weird thing, this, um, Jim Garrison, who was the guy, the investigator of the JFK assassination, he worked with Lee Harvey Oswald, um, at one point, which is another just like, where where would the twist send? Um, <clears throat> Lee Harvey Oswald was stationed in Japan um, at a base that um, the U-2 um, spy planes would launch out of and um, like go spy on Russia, right, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. He defects, Oswald defects to Russia, and soon afterwards, um, the Russians shoot down the U-2 plane carrying, uh, I believe his name was Gary Powers, but he was the guy that was shot down and taken hostage by the, um, by the Soviets 
And people think that it was due to information given to the Russians by um, Lee Harvey Oswald that they were able to shoot down this plane. Man, so, so fuck that guy, too. <laughs> well, Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah, right? But I mean, yeah. But I'm just saying he didn't even, before, he didn't come out of nowhere. Like, he wasn't, like, a good guy that one day snapped and killed the president. Like, he kind of sucked, yeah. like, a lot leading up yeah. to that yeah for sure for sure and uh but anyway it's it's fun to think that he and jim garrison who's the investigator of the jfk assassination actually worked in the same office together um back in i think it was in texas but they were um they were developing uh film uh photos taken by those u2 spy planes huh uh, so it just it's just it comes back around it's very strange um Let's see. So, I don't know. I think that's that's kind of it, really. Um, oh, the uh, here's a, another interesting tidbit. So you've got the uh, Maury Island UFO sighting. Three days later, there's the Mount Rainier sighting of, uh, I said, nine UFOs that time. Then a month later, you've got the Roswell uh crash and a lot of people think that the 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 craft that crashed at roswell was the um the wobbly ufo from maury island like oh. it, it was mal- it was malfunctioning and that's the one that eventually crashed um and then you know apparently apparently there were grays inside that one yeah i mean that's uh, a lot of speculation to assume out of all the crafts that were spotted a month earlier that the one with malfunctions was the one that crashed because any of the other ones could have malfunctioned you know what i'm saying like it's just like that's true that's true but it does make sense that they were all of the same sort of like fleet right yeah i would assume it could be any one of the ones in the fleet if it was one of you know if if it was one of the pacific northwest ones i just think you know you're thinking that when it did the fist bump it didn't repair it very well and then it that was the one that crashed (laughs) Um, so I don't you know. never know. It's, yeah, it's all speculation. There's so much to speculate about this story. Um, it's hard. It's hard. I, it's one of the ones where, like you, I like. I will kind of want to believe it, but or I guess you don't kind of want to believe it. You just don't believe it. But I, this one, I want to believe, and I think it's really fun. But there's too much horseshit um, and too many like conflicting accounts and things like that to really believe it but um you know who am i to say well it's a really fun story yeah to quote my friend jeff gayman uh he just always goes well something happened um mm-hmm. and so like something happened that was abnormal um and uh i mean maybe either i don't know a lot about ufo conspiracy theories so like i don't was the explanation for them that they were like military test ships or weather balloons or whatever. So either there was mil- there was a lot of military testing being done at the time and that's what explains all these things um or there yeah, were well, UFOs. The time ti- yeah, well the timing having it be post World War 2 um at the start of the Cold War Operation Paperclips bringing all these scientists that have um information um, that we're not privy to until you know they tell us maybe maybe that's what was going on is that some of these sightings were 
sort of like experimental aircraft. Um, one story, one one theory was that the the Maury Island UFOs were actually um, military aircraft designed to jam radar. Oh. Um, that, that, that's, that that's what was going on, um, and that was their purpose. So, you know, it's were they. You know, were they earthbound? Were they alien? I kind of think that they were earthbound. I kind of think all of that is earthbound. You know, if you're if you're an alien race, are you going to send physical things to another place, or are you just? I don't know. Are they are they drones mm-hmm. from alien from aliens, or are they just you know uh, experimental weapons that didn't didn't turn out? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it seems like because there was so much at this time, it could have been all from the same sort of sect of experimental craft and they all fucking failed. And that's why we've never seen them again. And we haven't seen any like commercial planes come out that look like donuts because it turns out they don't work very well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I think. So what was the vibe you got when you biked to the site of the incident? Like, to bring this back around. So what did you see? It was, it was so much fun. I mean, it was just a bicycle adventure. Um, that was the best part of it. Mm-hmm. It took me forever to get to the actual like beach at Maury Island. Um, but I was able to find a spot um, where I could actually like park my bike and uh, on some old driftwood and like eat my sandwich and walk up and down the shore looking for, for evidence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I found, I found some I found some stuff that looked like it had you know it was like uh, it looked metallic. I, I found some stuff that looked like it had some some metallic uh, elements to it. Um, made me kind of encrusted in some rocks and stuff. But I definitely brought back a few pieces. There's photos on my Twitter from from back then. You're gonna post a one of my you'll retweet one of my tweets, and then from there you can like see the thread yeah um, that contains lot, lots more photos but um you can that gives you a good you know it's a nice first person perspective um just to see those photos i took but it was a great it was a great trip along the way i asked every local that i encountered what they knew about maury island and most of them knew nothing they had no which idea I, which you know you can take it one of two ways you can say maybe they just never heard of it or they know everything and they're just trying to keep it quiet. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think this hopefully will be kind of inspirational for people to explore stuff in their own backyard. Um, I know Atlas Obscura is a great reference for kind of finding the unusual stuff in every city. Um, and so, you know, it's it's expensive to travel and get out of town, but like you can have adventures in your own backyard and, um, you know, maybe like Google the city you live in or go, yeah, go on Atlas Obscura and look up some fun stuff that you can do and have like an in-town adventure, which is probably also something that's really fun um, if you want to take your kids on it or whatever, you know, like just have an adventure and then uh, write in and tell us about it. And do it by bike. You'll get some exercise and some fresh air at the same time. And it won't cost you anything except for calories. There we go. Um, yeah. Th- we're solving people's lives right now. so um, We're a force of good. We are influencers. Uh, we're, we're internet personalities. 
I would say. That's that is you true. Know, someone, someone once said that um, everyone will be famous have fifteen minutes of fame, but then someone else came along and said everyone will be famous to fifteen people. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know where we sit with that one, but um, I'm well, happy with either. Both you and I have a lot more clout than just 15 people. You have like a thousand followers on Twitter, so. <laughs> Probably only have 40 real ones, so. Oh, I don't know. I have, I'm like, I'm a, I don't, I'm not like a local celebrity, but you know, I'm a woman about town. People know who I am and people know who I am on the internet. Um, yeah. So. You know, we're we're a big deal, and we're we're helping motivate people to get off the couch and explore. And we're we're producing content for Christ's sake. We're entertaining people. That we're, is, they should thank they should thank us as they sit in their cubicle listening to this, or on the train, or whatever. They, uh, it takes effort, people. It takes effort. It does. It really does. Um, and uh, we're just. We're altruistic human beings and we're selflessly out here creating content for people. So um, basically, you know, you're welcome, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. You're <laughs> welcome. Keep keep listening. This was a lot of fun, Sydney. Yes, I'm it looking was. Forward to our, I'm looking forward to our next story, which you and I know what it's going to be, but the listeners don't. And I'm excited. Um, I'm me excited. too. Uh, when I, well, well, we'll tell everyone happy hump day and then you and I will discuss this off air. Okay, sounds good. All right. Happy hump day, everyone. Happy hump day.